Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It is Wednesday, July the 29th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Joining me today are Jennifer Bray and Harry McGee to discuss another eventful week in the life of what our columnist Miriam Lord uh, this morning describes as Michal Martin's hapless coalition of headless chickens. A bit harsh, Jen? No, I think she's spot on. I think she's spot on. Um, I think she could have been a bit more harsh, even if she wanted to be, and she would have got away with that. But um, it's been a really difficult first month for the for the new government. I mean, Harry pointed out in his analysis piece yesterday that most governments have shaky starts, shaky middles and shaky ends and all, all kinds. But this one seems to have been particularly bad. Uh, when you take that, even on the very first day that ministers were appointed, that ended in controversy. The junior minister's issue was mired in controversy. Uh, then we had the issue of pay and this week more issues with junior minister's pay. And, you know, it does seem to me that they've kind of been rolling from one controversy to the next. And you have to imagine that Micheál Martin is looking back at his first month and thinking, oh, the second month will just have to be better. Um, how could it not be? Yeah, Harry, before we get into the nitty gritty of the various issues which have bedeviled the government over the last um, over the last couple of weeks, uh, as Jen says, you have a piece in today's newspaper, which is really about this is not unusual in the early days of a government. And we've seen it uh, as a recurring phenomenon. Is that because things like who gets jobs and who doesn't get jobs, who's going to be a special assistant, you know, how do things get divvied out? The kind of sausage making element of politics gets exposed at the start of a new government? Yeah, I mean, there's a process element to it. There's no doubt about that. And there's nothing that the public likes more than stories about how politicians are feathering their own nests. And we've had plenty of that in the past week. And it has resulted in two very embarrassing climb downs by government. First, by the cabinet collectively deciding to take a 10% pay cut, even though they had most of that restored uh, since the beginning of the year. And they tell us that that that, uh, particular decision Uh, was in process, but I think it was expedited by all the controversy over junior ministerial uh, pay. And uh, that was the second thing that the junior ministers, instead of taking the the third one, getting a pay rise, they've uh, collectively uh, decided to share the extra money that super junior ministers get. So it was uh, an embarrassing uh, reverse. I think the PUP uh, crisis as well, it's not a crisis really, but the PUP controversy uh, has also uh, caused more damage than perhaps it should be with the government that was more experienced. And I think when you talk about it, I talked about the process piece. I think the second piece in that equation is is the comparative lack of experience of um, both uh, the Greens and of Fianna Fáil in government. One of the points I was making in the piece is that Fianna Fáil traditionally was seen as the party of government, the natural governing party. So when they lost power, they were never out of power all that long. So when they went back into government, there was kind of muscle memory there of how government uh, operates. But Fianna Fáil have been out of government for the best part of a, a decade uh, now. And it shows, I mean, Micheál Martin is the only uh, Fianna Fáil person with senior ministerial uh, experience. Uh, Dara O'Brien and Dara Cleary, I think both had brief spells 
as junior ministers uh, pre-2011. But uh, a, a lot of the, the parliamentary party are new. There's some experienced people there, but a lot of the ministerial people are quite new to the job. And that, that has shown, frankly, in the past couple of weeks, no more so than with Norma Foley, who had a very uneasy first few weeks as Minister for Education, a little bit reminiscent of Heather Humphreys uh, in her first terrible month as Minister for Arts and Culture when she had to deal with the John McNulty affair. Uh, this is the Donegal shopkeeper who was uh, elevated, first of all, onto the board of MIMA and then uh, forwarded as a Fine Gael by-election candidate on the Arts and Culture panel, even though he had no background there. She had to defend that. And at times um, it looked like a, a, a Father Ted uh, episode, but uh, she actually survived that and went on. Norma Foley retrieved some of the, the losses uh, that she had early in the month. She, I think she was quite strong uh, this week uh, when, a, when the education, the back to school uh, package was unveiled. Uh, they've thrown lots of money at it and money and lots of money can sometimes uh, solve uh, everything, But there's a, a lack of experience there within Fianna Fáil and also a lack of experience within the Greens. Uh, Eamon Ryan is really the only person in the party with experience. They're riven by internal factions that haven't really been resolved uh, by the leadership contest. And a lot of their TDs, as I pointed out this morning, are not only new to the Dáil, but they're like new to politics as well. I mean, two years ago, many of them weren't even councillors. So they've become councillors, they've become TDs, and in some cases they've become ministers all within a very short period of time. Jen, in relation to all these issues, take the ministerial one, for example. I kind of feel that to some extent Fianna Fáil have been getting an unfair shake of the stick there. I know Michal Martin is the Taoiseach and he's the leader of Fianna Fáil as well. But these issues around the, the junior ministerial pay and those kind of things, all three parties bear a joint responsibility for how those things were handled, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Michal Martin is the Taoiseach and he's the one who will be asked about these questions during leaders' questions and and, uh, and in the doll. So he's the one who has to, I suppose, to, to feel the answers um, but you're right, it is. It, it was an agreement, obviously, to make sure that all the three super gen- juniors were getting paid the same amount, because in the previous government, only two of three were getting it. And Mary Mitchell O'Connor III had actually lost out because of the law. And this time they moved to, I suppose, bring in what they rather unfortunately called, I suppose, equality. Because when you when you get into the realm of, of, of pay equality, of course, you're going to have teachers and and nurses and doctors talking about what about our pay equality, which is absolutely fair enough. But I think, it, it, it like you say, was something that was agreed by the three parties and they do all shoulder some of the responsibility for how it's played out. But what I would say is that it strikes me that the, the biggest problem that's happened is the way things have actually panned out in terms of timing. So, you know, the junior minister's issue went through the doll last week and it was voted through. Um, and at that time, just from talking to even ministers and uh, senior people in, in all the parties over the last few days, nobody in any of the parties actually expected that it was going to become a massive issue. They didn't foresee a public um, backlash, which they probably should have, given the fact that you have hundreds of thousands of people out of work and then you're working to kind of, you're, you're, you're looking to put on all these add-ons as, as people would see it on top of pay. And I do think a lot of people accept the politicians should be paid well. It's a really difficult job, but it's it's the add-ons and the extra bits, I think, that can that can re- that can really rile people up and understandably so. But if you look at the timing of what happened, like I said last week, you had the juniors, you had the it go it went through the doll. Then over the weekend, you had it emerged that there were people, a certain number of people who were going to the airport who were in receipt of the pandemic unemployment payment, and they were having their payments stop on a certain number of job seekers as well. And this was because they were traveling and. 
for many people, they weren't aware that there were these checks at airports and, and there was a suspicion or a fear that this was somehow a new thing. So when you take, there was the junior ministers, then it came over the weekend about the PUP, people having their welfare rates cut. And then, then you had this come up this week about um, ministers' pay as in what the cabinet will take. And they said they were going to take a 10% pay cut, which seemed to be prompted by the outcry over the over the junior ministers. But actually, it turns out that they were just matching what the previous government were getting paid because they had taken or refused to take a number of planned increases in public service pay. So actually, you know, it's, it's the message that it sends out and the way it was let pan out. So the message is clearly, if you're looking from the outside, you can say maybe, well, okay, well, these junior ministers or super junior ministers are getting... Uh, a pay bump and they're getting an extra allowance and the cabinet are saying they're taking a 10% pay cut but in what world does a 10% pay cut look the exact same as what the previous government earned how is that even a pay cut if they're actually earning more and yet at the same time you people who have you know getting 350 euro a week or maybe less on the pandemic employment getting their payments cut because they dare to show up at the airport and it's the t- duality of that message and the message that it sends out when you take it as a whole which I think was the biggest problem um, for the government and, and you know they obviously the super juniors like Harry said they've agreed one of them will give back one of the allowances but they're going to share uh, the other two. I know this sounds a bit complicated I was actually trying to explain this to myself yesterday um, but you know so there's another thing where they sent out the, the government sent out a statement where they said the three junior ministers have agreed to waive this in allowance that's caused all these problems basically but when you drilled into it they were actually just going to share out the other two. But that did mean there was no additional expenditure by the state. I, I want to come to the PUP thing because in some ways I think it's more significant uh, in, in a moment in terms of what was happening at the airport. But um, Harry, these things don't actually matter very much except on a perceptual level. And therefore the failure here, it seems to me, as Jen says, is largely on the level of anticipating that there might be a problem and having structures in place to deal with that problem in terms of the timing. So bad messaging and bad kind of, I suppose, political instincts. Yeah, and I think um, the 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 watchword here is is opacity. Um, the 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 what they did, they, the, what they should have done is just said, listen, there are three super junior ministers. Two of them are getting sixteen grand more than the third person at the start. When they agreed, we're going to give the third one an extra sixteen grand, and they would have put that out, and they would have taken a bit of criticism and moved on. But what they did was they included it um, as a, a an amendment to the legislation that was setting up the new Department of Higher Education. And they didn't, t- didn't bother to tell anybody about it. So it was kind of slipped under the carpet or it came under the radar and then it was picked up. And because it was done in such a, you know, slightly surreptitious manner, uh, that kind of got them uh, a lot of, of flack. And uh, so I, I think that you need to be, you know, you need to be upfront with what you're doing. And if it's unpopular, you just can't try to slide it out in a way, and hope that nobody notices. I think that if you're saying something unpopular, you have to grasp the nettle and say, this is what we're doing, you know, we'll put it out there and live with that and then we move on. And I think you can see a slightly similar uh, phenomenon uh, as he segues onto PUP uh, with, with, with what's happened with the uh, pandemic unemployment payment is that suddenly people realised that there were rules in place of which they were unaware uh, and that included the fact that uh, those on PUP weren't allowed to go abroad for two weeks and still claim their pandemic unemployment payment, and also that there were social welfare inspectors uh, patrolling the airports and ports of this country asking people for PPS numbers. Both of those had a legislative basis, but they came under statutory instruments, which are kind of second-tier 
uh, pieces of legislation or regulations that are signed uh, by the minister. So they don't go to cabinet, they don't go to that public uh, process. They're signed off by the minister. Yeah, sure, they're lodged into the record of the houses of the Oireachtas, but you need to be kind of uh, Sherlock Holmes-like in terms of uh, your uh, intrepid investigative skills in order to unearth those and then kind of guess the kind of impact that they're going to have. So again, you have a, a, a new rule operating, but nobody knows the basis of the, the rule. And it's only this week when, when the researchers from the various parties and, and in media started looking behind uh, these decisions that they discovered that it did indeed have a legal basis. OK, I do want to dig into this a bit more because I, I do think it's interesting. Jen, you said it emerged at the weekend, but one of the reasons it emerged was because the Taunashta said it on the week in politics and people's uh, antennae went up a bit and then something strange happened with the actual the documentation on the relevant department, the Department of Social Protection's website changing over the course of a weekend, which is something which is now the subject of investigation. This can all be incredibly complex, but just to say um, that my understanding is that people in receipt usually of unemployment assistance or, or unemployment benefit uh, are perfectly entitled to go on holidays and are free to go on holidays wherever they want. That was the pre-pandemic situation. Then the pandemic un- unemployment payment was brought in. Uh, it is more unclear about whether that ability to go on holidays was associated with that from the start or or not. Now we have this situation about government advice in relation to travel and that advice is quite strong, but it is advice. I don't believe people should be travelling overseas unless there's a really urgent pressing need for them to, to, to do so. But isn't it fair to say that there's something wrong with implementing this new policy, because it is a new policy, um, preventing people from getting their payments if they leave the country because of government advice, advice being the key word, um, without informing them. I mean, that just seems sort of extraordinary to me. I mean, in other walks of life, there are things going on. There was a, there was a news item um, last week about civil servants who were told that they won't be paid if they go to a non-green listed country and come back and have to quarantine and that affects their ability to do their work for two weeks. That seems entirely clear and fair to me. In our own company, and I'm sure this is true of lots of other people listening to this, um, we've had communications from our HR department, which tells us that we need to communicate with them if we are planning to go overseas for some reason. And that, of course, may impact on our work. And we need to negotiate with our, our employer about that. And that is also fair enough. But, you know, the Irish Times HR department is very efficient, but it's not patrolling the airport to make sure that I'm not going on my holidays. So people are getting treated differently because of their status of their payments from the state. And it's been incredibly badly communicated. Yeah, I would agree with everything you say there, to be honest. I, um, I know you probably want to have a fight with me about this. No, <laughs> makes for a better podcast. But no, I do I do, um, I do, do agree with you. And, and you're right. Historically, it has been the case that you were allowed to take any two weeks in a calendar year um, without losing your welfare entitlement. And, and you could do that. And that's, that's always been the case. But I think this new rule was introduced around two weeks ago and uh, by the Minister for Social Protection, Heather Humphreys. And the new rule stated that the holiday must be in accordance with COVID-19 general travel advisory in operation by the Department of Foreign Affairs. Now, you know, you'd have to ask yourself, like you say, why wasn't this properly communicated to those who are receiving um, unemployment benefits or unemployment assistance? Um, and why was this? Why does this appear to have come out of the blue to a certain degree? And, and why is it necessary to sort of, to target those receiving those those payments? And you know, you can imagine a situation whereby at the start of the year, someone would have booked their summer holidays. Um, maybe it, uh, for those who are lucky enough, it might be one of those countries that's put on the green list now. 
And unfortunately, through no fault of their own, uh, they've lost their job. Maybe they're working in a pub. Maybe they're working in a nightclub. Maybe they're waiting for their relative industry to reopen um, in August. And then they go or they, they seek to go away on their holiday to their greenest country. And they find they're being stopped at the airport by inspectors. Now, what I will say about the inspectors is there have been inspectors, as far as to the best of my knowledge, in airports since around 2012. I, I, I seem to remember writing about this in around 2014 and there was criticism about it at the time as well. It's always going to be one of those areas that is quite unpalatable um, and the department will defend it on the basis that they do need to make a certain amount of control savings every year. They have an anti-fraud unit. They have a unit that goes to seek to make sure there's no errors in payments in order to save money for the tax parent that's their argument and that's fine but this particular problem seems to have been that the advice has changed and now you can't travel and it has to be within the COVID-19 general travel advice but there's equally been criticism of the COVID-19 general travel advice because on one hand you have a government saying do not travel and like you said a lot of people would agree with that and say why would you want to travel but then you're you're they're producing a green list um and that does send out mixed messages it's saying don't travel but you can travel to this place, but don't travel to this place. You know, to, to a certain degree, people have to use their common sense here and say, does it make sense? Is it is it safe to travel? No, I won't. Fine. But when you have a government saying, here's a list of countries that you can go to and people maybe who are cracking up a bit at home, it does send out mixed messages. And I think... Well, well hold on a sec. The, the green list is not a list of countries that you can travel to. The, the, the advisory is that uh, nobody should travel um, for non-essential travel to any country outside Ireland right now. The only difference with the green list is that you're not required to quarantine on your return. Sure, but a lot of, a lot of people will take that as, you know, I can travel there, I can go to this place without having to quarantine, I can come back home and work. Now, that, that list can change. It can change every two weeks in Ireland and you could be away and it could change and you come back and you have to quarantine. But there are a lot of people who would look at, even the phrase green list tells you it's safe to go. It's, you know, there is a mixed message here. There's no doubt about it. Harry? The advice has changed, actually, and the, the, the green list, um, uh, they're, they're, they're not saying that unnecessary travel to those countries uh, should not happen. They, they're saying that normal travel uh, precautions should apply. So they're, they've actually moved from that position of a week ago uh, on their website. And I spoke to one of their press officers uh, during the week and, and he was saying that, um, that that the advice has changed in relation to those countries and it has been updated on, on a fortnightly basis. So that kind of uh, inherent contradiction between don't travel unnecessarily, but you can go to these countries has been resolved to a certain extent. But again, they haven't done a very uh, amazing job of communicating that to the population uh, in uh, general. So um, uh, that that's what's happened uh, there. Just in relation to the PUP thing, um, they, they, there's been a, a political row about that. Uh, Jennifer is referring to it being in place since 2012. The Labour Party are saying that... Uh, that the legislation to pave the way for social welfare inspectors at airports has been there since 2007, 2008, when Mary Hannafin was Minister for Social Protection. So it does have a history. It's never really been scrutinised, perhaps, to the extent that it, it should have been. But, but but the purpose of that, Harry, just to be clear, the purpose of that, and the word fraud is bandied around sometimes here, and I think that's unfortunate as well in relation to n- nobody's claiming that anybody here in this instance is, is committing fraud. Though, as, as I understand it, those measures were brought into place because there was a perceived problem with a certain type of fraud taking place where people who were actually living outside the state were purporting to be in the state and were claiming social welfare benefits of one sort or another. 
Yes, and that and that was the rationale behind that particular policy initiative. And few people, as you said, and as Jennifer has said, would actually quibble with that. I mean, people, you know, I mean, if if somebody is receiving PUP, uh, they should be entitled, in my view, to the same protection as those who are receiving uh, social welfare, uh, job seekers and uh, allowance, etc., and should be allowed to to go abroad for two weeks. People might have been saving for months in order to spend two weeks in Italy or in 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 Greece on a relatively cheap um, uh, holiday. And I, I think that that once you start saying to those people that you can't leave the country, whereas other people can leave the country, they can leave the country, of course, they lose their payments. But I think there is uh, people do recognise there is an an inherent uh, uh, inequity there and perhaps an unfairness. I think the situation changes when somebody wants to go and leave the country you know, for a month or for two months or for three months and still expect to receive the pandemic unemployment payment. And then there's the, the inequity there is works the other way. I, I don't think that people should be entitled to leave it if, they're, if, they, if they change their residence or if they're away from the country for longer than a relatively short uh, period no, of time. Of, of course not. That goes without saying. Um, but I still think there's... there's yeah, but so, some, people, some people have quibbled with that. Some people say, well, if somebody's from, from another country and if they're living in Ireland can't get work over here and go home you know, to look after their parents for a while or to visit their relatives or to look for work over there. They're still seeking for work. They should still be entitled to the, to the payment. Sorry, I, I actually don't accept that as, as, a, as a proposition. But again, I mean, this has become a big problem for, for the government and it's become uh, another uh, stick for the opposition uh, to beat the government with. And they've done it very effectively uh, this week. And I think that Heather Humphreys last night, uh, and she's in the doll again this morning, actually uh, uh, answering oral questions as Minister for Social Protection. I think they haven't handled it very well. And I think they're not out of the water or out of the woods on this particular one as yet. To what extent, Jen, is, I recall, isn't it a couple of years ago, Leo Varadkar was very keen on stamping out social welfare fraud and there were campaigns with hashtags, hashtags about fraud and stuff like that. Social welfare fraud exists in this country. Um, but as some people have pointed out, it's not enormous in terms of elements of fraud that cost money to the state. There's probably bigger problems with some of the things that we've seen in banks. For example, down the years, there are there are issues with tax evasion as well. But it's a subject which Leo Varadkar seems very fond of. And I wonder, is that because his instinct as Fine Gael leader, is talking about social welfare fraud appeals to the Fine Gael base? Perhaps. Um, the impression I always got from Leo Varadkar was more that he, when he was in that department, when he was the Minister for Social Protection, that this was something that had been flagged to him by his officials and something which he obviously then campaigned on. And I was there that morning when he launched the Welfare Cheats, Cheat Us All campaign. And, you know, I, I watched the backlash within hours and within days. Um, and there was always a suspicion that this was something that played into the Fine Gael base. Um, now, you know, I suppose if you actually look at the figures in terms of, and, and I do agree with you earlier on what you said, uh, the word fraud is bandied about way too much. And it is. Um, like a lot of the time it can be an error. A lot of the time it can be an overpayment that is actually the department's fault. Uh, it's not just as black and white as you're caught at the airport. That's fraud. It's obviously not like that. And especially when it comes to something like the pandemic unemployment payment, where you've clearly lost your job uh, and situations beyond your control. But when you look at the figures in terms of, of, of welfare fraud itself, um, you know, the department every year, they they do reviews of cases. And I think last year they reviewed, as to the best of my knowledge, around 9,000 cases, 9,000 job seekers cases. And they made 
savings, as they say, or control savings in around 31% of those cases. And they've got a, a massive anti-fraud unit and a massive unit in the department which looks at these issues and looks for overpayments and looks for errors. And this year alone, they're looking to make, like I say, control savings because you can't call it, it's, it's multifaceted, of up to 520 million euro. That's a huge amount of money. To the best of my knowledge, last year they, they made these savings of around 500 million euros. So, you know, there are issues in the system. They do need to have their inspectors. They have guards seconded um, to, to help them in that work. And I do think that a lot of people would think that that's right, fair and just. And that needs to be separated, I think, bet- between that issue and the issue which is playing out now. And that's the fact that the advice for people receiving this payment has changed um, and that all of a sudden, there, the you know, where it was the case that you could take two weeks if you, and I think the cases that you informed the department, now you can't travel. Um, and to tie it into COVID, to me, obviously it makes sense in terms of a public health perspective, but it doesn't really make much sense when these aren't the rules that are being applied to other people. And I think that that's, that's the issue. And like I said earlier, the when you marry this situation where there are people and they could be traveling for other reasons, maybe they didn't know that they couldn't travel with the twin message that we've got ministers uh, taking pay cuts that aren't pay cuts and junior ministers waiving fees but still getting an increase. It's just not a good look. And it's, 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 I do agree with Harry, we're not out of the woods on this yet. For example, the department said to me last night that they, uh, that they have checked and stopped the claims for two and a half thousand people when you count in Dublin Airport, all the other ports, all the other airports and in, as they said, more than 90%, but they didn't say 91 or 92. So let's take it as 90%, 90 90.5%, 90%. These uh, people were intending to leave the state for good. Now, the question would be, how do you know that? And, 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 how exactly did you determine just because this person has a one-way ticket doesn't mean they're not coming back? Uh, and what about the other 10%? What's going to happen to them? That's still a lot of people. Are they going to get their money back? Um, how long will this review take that Michal Martin referred to? So I, I agree with Harry. We're, we're not out of the woods on this yet. And I think there'll have to be a little bit more transparency uh, when it comes to government messaging. And maybe it's because they're in their first month and they haven't quite worked out. You know, And a lot of them are still hiring press officers and all this kind of stuff. So maybe it's inevitable, but... Uh, there will need to be more more um, transparency. Maybe it's because, Harry, as well, that everything's just getting more and more complicated as we move into this new phase of dealing with the pandemic. And the, 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 that ad we keep hearing still on the radio about we're all in this together um, starts to ring a little bit hollow when you see some of these things going on. And I look at something like Mark McSharry's, the Fianna Fáil backbencher's remarkable quote in the doll last night. He was talking about people in the public service. And I quote, he says, who are using the situation as cover to lie on the couch and watch box sets, returning an odd call here and there and doing the maximum of the minimum to tick over during this period. I'd say that got a few hackles rising. Although there may well be a bit of truth in it. What do you think? Well, there could be, yeah, but it's impossible to measure that and I'm not going to start measuring it now and uh, draw the uh, a ton of bricks down on myself. I mean, I'm sure there are some people who have used the pandemic as, as a perfect opportunity to skive and to do as little as possible. But I, I, I'm sure that they're a relatively small minimum. I think most people do want to work. I mean, they complain about it, as we all do. But they, you know, work work is defines a lot of people and and what they are and what they do, and it, it applies to the uh, the much berated civil servants and public servants as much as it does to those in the um, in, in the private sector. 
So, um, yep, um, it, it, all, all, all in this together, I think we are moving on to a second uh, phase now and we're looking at a reopening of society and we're looking at that kind of collective mehel type endeavour that everybody was so praiseworthy of earlier on the year, beginning to fragment and dissipate uh, a little. I think the big challenge will come when we have the inevitable second wave and when the pandemic comes back and nobody knows how virulent it will be when it does come back or how potent the actual virus uh, will be. But it certainly will be challenging. And if we start facing lockdowns like they're facing in Melbourne, for example, at the moment and elsewhere, you know, second lockdowns, people being told to stay at home, I think it will really uh, stretch this uh, this notion that we're all in this together because I think people uh, at that stage will be beginning to feel the real pains of not being in work or not having money coming in or not being able to do enjoy the type of life or lifestyle that they have had in, in, in the past. So I, I think we're still slightly in a kind of a buffer period where the pandemic, the PUP is still relatively high. Uh, where the wage supplement schemes for those who are in employments uh, which are in jeopardy because of COVID-19 are still getting paid. But as we move into the autumn and into the winter and as those payments begin to taper off and people begin to realise that, you know, their jobs are no longer there and they're on job seekers allowance, which is €203 a week, I think that's when uh, the um, reality will begin to be borne home, just not just for individuals, but for society as a whole, and we will realise that we have a whole new set of problems that we're going to have to deal with in the medium to long term. I think you're absolutely right about how, how these things are going to play out or how it may play out during the winter. And in relation to that, Jen, I mean, we did have the big reveal. We've been dissing the government from the start of this podcast, but what seemed a little bit more um, coherent, thought through, um, professional was Norma Foley's reveal of the plan to reopen schools. There's the guidelines on the different social distancing protocols, which have to to be applied at different stages in primary and in secondary. There's the whole basis of guidelines on how you actually get those to work in a school building. And then there's hundreds of millions of euro as well, aren't there, for everything from hand sanitizers to PPE to what are anticipated to be hundreds, if possibly thousands of substitute teachers that might be required. Yeah, yeah I, I would agree. I, I think um, from an optical point of view, uh, the, the press conference given after the cabinet from Norma Foley and Micheál Martin was the most coherent. Um, and it had a very clear message about what the plan involved for schools is 375 million. You're talking about, um, I think, around a, a thousand post-primary uh, extra extra teaching posts. And yeah, so there was, the detail in it was very clear. You know, we know about how much money there's going to be for cleaning and hygiene. We know how much there's going to be for um, minor minor building works to make sure that the, the buildings themselves are suitable uh, in a COVID environment. And that, that was all fine. But from the, from digging around a bit afterwards, it struck me that talking to ministers who were in the room when they were discussing the, the plan for schools, they were all on board, but the big question that they had and the thing that they were asking Norma Foley, other ministers were, can this be delivered on time? And, you know, she offered assurances, at the best of my knowledge, that it could. And in the in the press conference afterwards, she said that there was no reason why these schools shouldn't open towards the end of August. And she pointed out that there's always uh, a lag between some schools, some open on the 26th, some open the 28th, and that's all fine. But there, I think there is a growing scepticism that this is potentially not doable for a lot of schools in that time period. Um, and, and that will be the big test. It'll be, you know, I think a lot of people would accept that you need to be pragmatic and, you know, there will be a delay. But how long will that delay be? You know, and and, and when you think about it, the, de- the decision and the plan to hire up to a thousand extra teachers, she was asked, 
quite clearly by journalists. Uh, how are you going to do this? And she talked about a different, a range of different schemes in a range of different areas. But it did strike me that all of these different places where they were going to get these extra teachers, it's going to take time. There's also issues with Garda vetting, um, which I don't think have been properly ironed out. And, I, you know, it, I think we'll, we might be looking at a situation at the end of the month where this was the first coherent plan presented by the government and also something that Michal Marin has made an absolute priority from day one. And he made that clear. If we don't keep COVID levels down, we can't reopen schools. And, and that was his clear message and that was priority. And he said that to Norma Foley. I think on our first day, we have to reopen the schools. But, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an ambitious plan. But I think a lot of teachers and a lot of politicians, quite frankly, are looking at it and thinking... It's not going to be ready in time. Finally, Harry, I suppose, I mean, some of the issues we've talked about here, my sense is that if we were to looking back at them in 12 months time, we'd be saying, ah, they were storms and teacups. They didn't actually amount to that much in themselves. Perhaps they, you know, gave some indications of some 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 problems or perhaps not, as it turned out. But the key things that have happened over the last two weeks are number one, the announcement of the of the huge job stimulus um, last week, and number two, the plan for schools. And both those, the proof is going to be in the pudding, as you say, from September to February uh, of the months which are coming ahead. Um, I'd say Mio Martin is looking forward to the dull recess where he can just get down to work to make sure that those, in as much as he can, that he and his government can make sure that those things have the effect that they intend them to have in the autumn. Yeah, I mean, it just never ceases to amaze me how little we learn as journalists. We're looking at something happening in the here and now and saying, that looks really bad for Micheál Martin. That looks really bad for the government. They're not going to survive, you know. And then a week later, it's all forgotten about and we're on to the next crisis. And as, you, as you're as right, you go look at, you go a year forward and you look back and you say, God, how much energy we all expended in, in you know, uh, worrying publicly about all this and nobody remembers it anymore. So these things do happen. Unfortunately, journalism is is probably not even the first page of history. It's probably the first full stop on the first line uh, of history. It's 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 so. I'm not saying this as uh, I'm, I'm not trying to denigrate our our profession, but I mean it doesn't. We don't. It 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 does lend itself to a slight superficiality, and I say that in the best possible way, if it's possible to say it in the best possible way. But anyways, I'm diverting there. I think in a year's time, most of these things will be forgotten about. I think the two things that will be scrutinised and interrogated are the stimulus plan, as you said, and also the back to school plan, both of which are critical. And the thing that struck me about the back to school plan is that they took a tough decision. There was no beating around the bush that the schools were coming back in September, no matter what. And they decided that they would they would they would try to see whatever way it was possible to achieve that aim. And for once, they went out, they did the homework, they did research, they consulted all the stakeholders, but they didn't come back with something that had been diluted so much it became a homeopathic kind of remedy. They came back uh, with a, a strong plan. And there has been justifiable criticism that it's all a little bit late in the day and it is going to be a rush to get it done in time. But the thing that impressed me about it was that it was very strong. And I think they had comprehensive protocols laid out. They had all the logistics uh, thought about. They also thought about all the all the eventualities that might uh, that that might happen uh, as well. So I think that was a, a signal success of the government. But again, we'll just see how it works. It looks good on paper. We'll just see how it works in practice. And that's something that we'll be returning to, I'd say, in six months and a year's time to see if it has actually lived up to its promise and expectation. I think you're absolutely right about that. We'll leave it there, though, for the moment. Thanks very much to Harry and Jen. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. Before you go, I'd like to encourage you yet again that if you have not already done so, to go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe 
subscribe to sign up for unlimited access to the Irish Times for the introductory price of one euro for the first month. And if you do want to get in touch with us, we'd be delighted to hear from you. Just email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. 